You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Welcome back, everyone. I have got, once again, Jamie Keach on the call on the line here. And um, welcome, Jamie. Yeah, Chris, good to be back. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So we're going to talk a little bit today about the one of the models, if you will, in the resource industry of how um, certain companies structure their operations and why we're pretty interested in one particular model. So you wrote a blog post uh, last week, Jamie, um, where you discussed a company that we know pretty well, Evram Resources, and their their model, which is um, called the prospect generator model. Do you want to just, for listeners, give us um, a rundown as to what that actually looks like? What is the prospect generator model? Yeah. Um, so the prospect generator model is a model that has really become popularized probably over the last 10 years, but particularly over the last five years in the junior mining and exploration space and it's differentiated from your typical exploration model where you know a company has a property or a prospect uh you know they raise money on the back of that they execute on a drill program or a geophysical program or or whatever sort of exploration they they've said they're going to do and then if that works out great you know they're off to the races uh they're able to raise more money and continue the, the program if it doesn't work out, you know, they're kind of out of luck and you find these companies that have, they've had a thesis uh, and they've raised money on what, what might very well be a very good thesis. Uh, and every piece of data they have up to that point backs it up and supports it. But, you know, once they go and test it out, it, it doesn't come through. You know, the, the drill doesn't hit. Uh, they're not able to prove it with the drill bit, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't work out. And then that, that company is kind of in a, in a tough position there. Uh, what they've raised money on is, is it hasn't panned out and they're not able to raise more money and continue the company. So what the prospect generator does is the idea of instead of betting all your eggs in one basket and hoping for that big win, it's taking really a basket of different, uh, of different projects and diversifying the upside across them, but also the risk. So, if I'm a prospect generator, what I'll do is generally go out and acquire earlier stage projects for very cheap. And then I'll do occasionally work on them myself for very, very cheap. So this can include, uh, you know, soil sampling, chip sampling, trench sampling, maybe some, some geophysics, but I'll sort of prove the very most basic concept of that. And then what I'll do with that project is try to do a joint venture with a bigger company, with a better finance company that will take it to the next level. So I'll have my prospect and then I go talk to the majors or the mid tiers or even another well-financed junior company that wants to come in and run that project and uh, finance that project and really make it theirs. And what they'll do by actually doing the work or financing the work is they'll earn into the ownership of that project. So this will really depend on the companies or the deals the company strike but it could be they earn in 25% or they could earn in 99%. Uh, 
or they can earn in 100% and the, the parent company maybe retains a royalty or something like that. So the idea is that the prospect generator has you know, one, two, five, ten of these things with different companies and different partners that are doing the work. And so while they, they really give away a lot of the upside, so they're not going to get that massive spike on one great drill hole or one great find, but they're going to be creating value across a spectrum of risk mitigated projects. And in exchange for sort of limiting their upside, they basically entirely mitigate the risk and they're able to operate really, really inexpensively compared to a traditional exploration uh, company. You made a really good um, comment there, Jamie, around mitigating the risk. And, you know, this is one of the things um, I learned some many, many years back when I was in my 20s and I was lucky enough to make a bunch of money in the resource space. And it was um, it was actually down to one of your mates um, who was at, <clears throat> at the time was working as a broker for uh, Rick Rule's company, which was at the time Global Resource Investments. Um, his name is Paul Van Eden. And so um, one of the things that was prevalent in all of his work was this risk mitigation side of things. And in a bull market, you know, everybody gets all excited about these, um, these companies that run and even the dogs run. Um, but the biggest risk easily in this space is having these things wipe out and go to zero. And it happens so consistently that even in a bull market, it'll, it'll still happen. Um, yeah. And, and one of the things that, has always fascinated me because it's a, it's a bit of a behavioral psychology thing is that the, you can, you can have a whole host of these things getting wiped out, but the, the analysts and the media coverage of them will last for maybe um, if you're lucky a week. And that's probably being pretty generous to them. Um, you know, there's human nature is such that we're very, um, hopeful species right and so you will have let's say, <laughs> yes. find and you had 10 companies go bust like there will be an enormous amount of coverage about that one company that's gone 10x and there will be very very little coverage on the 10 companies that have just lost people their shirts and so the smart investor will look through all of that narrative and look through all of the marketing hype and and Sometimes it's not even marketing hype. Sometimes it is a company that's literally, you know, good old Diamond Fields, for example, that um, hits a massive deposit and um, and becomes in, enormously valuable. But yeah, um, well, the, everyone, I feel like everyone thinks that they're going to be the one in the company that survives, that that you know, you know, rockets up to ten times the share price. You see that, and you assume, well, that's where I'm going to be. But, you know, statistically, you're not. You're going to be in no, it's... the other 99% of companies that lose everything. And you know, I've got a good friend of mine. Uh, he works for one of these great exploration companies that has absolutely crushed it. They've, you know, they've all made a lot of money and they've made their shareholders a lot of money. And he said to me once, he's like, you know, I don't like the, I don't like the prospect generator model. You give away all your upside. Like, it's so much better to do it this way. And I was like, yeah, man, well, it's definitely better to do it this way when you're the one, when you, when you win. <laughs> But you know you're <laughs> you're you know you're the one in a million right now. It's you're, you know, you're the you're guy who, who you put it all on black and and yeah. you came away. I mean, you know, lucky you. <laughs> but and, and he's right. If you're gonna win, that's that's the way to do it. But you're probably not. 
no it's it's like anything i mean if you look at um traders right um and it doesn't matter if you're trading forex or if you're trading equities or futures or grains or whatever the vast well firstly the vast majority of traders lose but secondly those who actually win um they will lose upwards of 50 percent of their trades often and they'll still yeah. profit right but they're, 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 they're mitigating their losses and that is what makes the difference between a successful trader and a shitty trader is the guy that yeah. mitigates yeah. his losses because he understands risk and he understands how to manage mm -hmm. that risk and that's position well, sizing and a whole lot of things but so when you come into the prospect generator model what you're doing is you're realizing that you're not necessarily the guy who puts it on black and walks home because that's just not a, like that's, that's hope, which is just a shitty strategy. So yeah. Um, yeah, no, we like this model, obviously. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's the smartest way to conduct exploration and you know, something that's, uh, so people, a lot of people hate prospect generators. Uh, they get very little analyst coverage. They often get very little attention, especially in a good market. Um, but what I think a lot of people forget is that, you know, the prospect generator, this company, it has, it has the option to keep that project. So, you know, 99 out of a hundred, they're going to acquire that project and they're going to farm out the work and the financing to another company. Mm -hmm. But, you know, their job is to churn through these projects. And if they're any good at what they do, they get to look at a lot more exploration projects than the average, the average junior mining company, because they're not focused on any one. And the advantage to that is if they do come across that one, that one that they think is basically a home run and, you know, maybe worth, if not betting the farm on, taking a very significant bet on, they're able to do that. Uh, and I mentioned that in this article with Everum. So Everum had, I think, been going for seven or eight years now. They're looking at 30 to 40 projects a year. Uh, they've got a portfolio of eight projects with various joint ventures. And only now have they actually chosen one that they're going to advance themselves. And what they've done so far, I mean, they've advanced it very cheaply. They've advanced it basically doing trench sampling, which is a guy with a shovel and a bag digging a hole in a line and filling the bag up with dirt and sending it away to assays. They've and some geophysics. And they've, you know, they've started to define that deposit. And it's, the results have been extremely promising. And as a result, they've seen their share price triple in just a few weeks. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 a, something else that um you and I discussed previously on this, and I'll just mention it here for readers' sake. The other thing with a company like Evram, and, and like we're not necessarily cheerleaders for Evram, it's just one that we know well. But you know, um, the the holders of these the, the shareholders of these companies, especially at this stage of the cycle, Jamie, um, they're not your they're not retail for starters. Um, the retail okay. crowd have not come in diving into the space going, woohoo, I'm going to, let's go to Vegas. I'm going to make a ton of money and, and we'll get there, right? We're definitely going to get there, um, but we're not there yet. And, um, and so the downside, it's not just the downside in terms of the operating model, but it's also the downside in terms of their equity capital because of who holds them at the, not just at the bottom of a cycle, which is kind of where we're at, although that was probably a couple of years back when we hit the bottom, but, um, but it's the, that type of company and who understands it and holds it. So like in this instance, um, who are the main, uh, you 
So two of the biggest shareholders are Altius Minerals, uh, which is, in my opinion, arguably the best, most successful prospect generator out there. It's run by a guy named Brian Dalton out of Newfoundland in Eastern Canada. I mean, they've had tremendous amounts of success in acquiring projects, in acquiring royalties. Uh, I'm not quite sure what they're valued at now, but the high hundreds of millions of dollars, I believe. I mean, they've got a $14, $15 share price. They own a, own a royalty on Boise's Bay, one of the most uh, you know, prolific, successful mines in history. Uh, and the other one is Adrian Day, who is, uh, I believe he runs a fund, uh, but also runs a newsletter. And he's, I mean, a very experienced mining resource investor. He knows what he's getting himself into. And, uh, you know, they've held it for years. And they uh, have supported the team through the highs and lows of the market. And, you know, those are not the kind of guys that back someone lightly and they know what they're doing. Well, it's one of those things that you like to see is you like to see a company that's managed to um, manage to operate through both a bull and a bear market consistently that doesn't need to use hypey um, narratives and promotional um, jargon to get the word out. Um, and this is one of them because like, if you look up, there's just basically no coverage on this company. There's, there's certainly no money being spent on marketing the share price, if you will. No, um, and it's, that's highly unusual. in, <laughs> as you'd know, in the resource space, because I mean, uh, the, the, the only thing worse than a central banker is pretty much a, a Vancouver resource broker. And <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. And these yeah. companies, they can issue they can issue equity faster than than um, Draghi or any of these guys can issue um, uh, uh, government bonds. So, um, and people forget that they kind of think, oh, we're dealing with real stuff. Well, you are dealing with real stuff, and that's why we're invested in the space. But um, you know, if you want to buy real stuff, well, go and buy futures contracts. Go and buy the grain contracts, or go buy the metals contracts. Um, if you want leverage that, then fine, play in the space. But realize that yeah. this is not, you're not necessarily buying stuff. You're buying a derivative of stuff. And that derivative of stuff <clears throat> is often controlled and managed by people that are, don't necessarily have anything. Most well, of the companies are, are, don't have anything. What a lot of pe people don't understand is often the barrier to entry into the mining resource space is extremely low. Uh, so, I mean, in a bull market in particular, you get a lot of ex-brokers or ex-promoters that are able to scrounge a few million dollars uh, on the back of a half-decent story on something that's basically completely worthless, and they put together a company, and, you know, they, they milk that for years to come. And, you know, to find teams that have a proven track record and actually know what they're doing, it's, it is the exception to the rule. Um, yeah. You know, again, going back to Evram, I mean, whom you mentioned earlier, Paul Van Eden is the chairman and he was one of the co-founders with the CEO, uh, Patty Nickel. I mean, those are guys that have spent pretty much their whole careers in the mining and resource space. They know what they're looking for. They, uh, they know how to run a project. They know, uh, they know what they're doing and they're not out to make a quick buck on flipping stuff. They're trying to build a real company. Yeah. Yep. No nonsense, guys. So... Um, let's jump around a little bit. Um, let's talk about the kind of broader space, forgetting about particular companies and, and um, 
their operating models. One of the things that we've been writing about on the blog for some time and um, our thinking is aligned on this is the, um, the broader context of a resource bull market. And it's a resource bull market on the back, not, ne not necessarily of economic growth, but on one of increasing geopolitical tensions. Um, and we were talking about the, um, the buildup of um, strategic reserves and things of that nature um, in the energy space. Um, and I just yeah. put out a, a video on that for insider members um, on the weekend. But can you, so um, one of the things that you're looking at there and um, we've been discussing for some time is the energy space in uranium. And we've got a couple of deals lined up in that space. Um, what are you seeing there? And, and what are your thoughts with respect to, you know, that kind of geopolitical environment? Well, I mean, it's interesting to see. So uranium's been in a bear market for how long now? Something like seven years, I think. When did they peak? Uh, I would say it was around somewhere between 2010 and 2012. And everyone's been saying that, you know, it's, you know, the bull market's right around the corner. Uranium prices can't maintain or maintain this low for this long. And it hasn't really happened yet. But, you know, to your point, what we're seeing is this real change in the geopolitical space. And you've mentioned it before on the blog where the countries are not working together anymore. Uh, and we're not seeing that collaboration. One of the things, Jamie, that I was, I've been um, musing about a lot and, and we're seeing this coming through, and I kind of wish that we'd never get there, but um, we sort of anticipated it and, and here we are today, is that... Um, in an environment that's politically fractious, where um, you don't even necessarily, you're not at war, but you're increasingly uncertain about um, your supplies in, in whatever it is that you're doing. So if you're, if you're in a, a company, just operating a company, um, whatever it is, your inputs that you, that you utilize in that company, you start wondering about them. And we saw that issue with Rusol and, um, and the 11 other companies that have been hit. And it's not just Russian um, companies. There's, there's a whole lot of people in the firing line of Washington. And then, of course, there's going to be retaliatory deals. So um, this, is, this is just the world that we're moving very rapidly into. And what it means is that you have, a um, from a, a business standpoint, people increasingly have uncertainty about supplies. And when you have uncertainty about supplies, the first thing that you do is you try and lock them in, right? Um, your supply chains, you, you try and make sure that they are intact and your relationships are strong. And then if you're looking at a political, um, uh, political moves that might cause those to be problematic. In other words, if, you do, if you're dealing with a company that subsequently gets put on a blacklist, you want to have a plan B and you want to have somebody else that you can turn to to get those supplies, whatever they may be. And so that creates uncertainty and it also creates a desire to hoard um, because that's what you do. It's like if you, weren't, if you weren't sure that you had enough food supplies, 
like you're going to go out and start shopping. And like people do that. You see when a hurricane comes. I mean, suddenly the supermarket shelves are empty. This is not any different. And so that happens on an individual private company level. But then it also happens very much at a political level. And so um, for a government, they realize that their their nation's um, security needs to be addressed and it needs to be um, uh um, they need to try and secure their nation's future. And and that's more often than not um, a matter of securing all of those supplies. So you've got certain countries which have a lot of security um, in that respect. And the United States is one of them because they have um, security largely of energy and they have security largely of um, foodstuffs and, and a lot of, a lot of um, things like that. Whereas, not all countries are, are blessed to the same um, regard, but they they will move towards securing those supplies. And so, they- so how do you see how do you see countries like Germany and France and Japan who rely so heavily on uranium and nuclear power really securing those stocks going forward? Yeah. So look, I mean, this is really interesting because this. Firstly, you know, Germany got rid of all their nuclear power um, for the most part, which is really just silly. I mean, it's, as I pointed out before, nuclear power is easily the safest um, mass power that we have. It's, it's just that the narrative behind it is such that when you do have a disaster, it's, it's, it's quite large and it's, um, it hits the news wires and it's very visible. But the fact yep. is that, so when you have Fukushima, you have, um, it's a pretty big event and, um, and it makes the headlines. But the fact is, over the course of um, the last 50, 100 years, uranium, uh, or should I say nuclear energy, has killed an absolute fraction of people in comparison to all of the other energy sources. Um, it's a little bit like tsunamis are not a problem, Jamie. I live on the beach here, and like it's silly. They've got all these bloody tsunami warnings all over the place and all this, and... I mean, fine. Yeah, if you had a tsunami, it would be catastrophic. But the point is, I've got far more risk. My kids have got far more risk getting hit by a car or falling off of out of a tree than they are ever going to have being wiped out by a tsunami. That's just a fact. And so, mm-hmm. uh, but kids fall out of trees all the time. And, and people have motor car accidents all the time um, and die from them. And- and people die from, you know, the use of fossil fuels all the time. Absolutely. I mean, in China, it's an epidemic from air quality. It's, but it's a constant thing. It's like, oh, you know, one person dies, you know, mm-hmm. another one dies tomorrow. So it's this kind of steady stream, if you will, which we become very desensitized to. But so steady, steady stream death versus bulk death. Exactly. The, and and the, the bulk death way. could be like a fraction of that steady stream in aggregate, <laughs> but it has an it has a, a much greater impact on um, on us because of the visual aspects and, and because it has, it's, look, it's like air, tra- air, air travel is far safer than road travel. But yep. you will yeah, find more people that are afraid of air travel than they are afraid of road travel. You go, know, how could that be? The facts don't support it. It's far, da- far more dangerous for, for you and I to jump into the car and drive across the country than it is to fly across the country. 
But nobody thinks about that. They don't even hesitate to jump in the car and drive across. On the other hand, you'll have these people, not many of them, but they're there and they'll fret when they get on a plane. They're like, oh, shit, you know, what if a terrorist takes it down? Or what if it falls out of the sky? Or And, and yeah. every now and then you have a plane crash. And when a plane crashes, you have like 300 people dead. Boom. So it's not, it's, it's the same thing as Fukushima. It's the same thing as a tsunami. The fact is it's mm-hmm. not relevant. Anyway, so that's, that's kind of one thing. But so coming back to so this, question, this securing of the securing of national assets. I mean, we've spoken about this before and we think there's a very good chance that this is going to drive uranium price over the next 12 to 18 months. But I mean, what other, what other commodities do you feel are going to benefit mostly from this? I mean, I always look at copper. Uh, I, I like copper a lot. Um, I think it's going to be very much on the rise over the next year. And there are not a lot of good assets out there to be had. Um, and I wonder, are we going to see the value of that, or the value of copper, which we use in almost everything, uh, rise with, with the securing of assets? Or do you think it's going to mostly affect energy? Yeah, so it's a really good question, Jamie. And I mean, I know you and I have spoken about this before, but the wonderful thing with copper, and I agree with you on copper, the wonderful thing with copper is that many of the other metals that we are bullish on are actually a byproduct of copper or a byproduct right, like cobalt, of cobalt, for example. <clears throat> exactly. And so you kind of almost, you're often, and um, you know, there's one that we're just looking at now and putting an alert together you you can and this is a particular um asset which they found another resource which they hadn't anticipated finding at all <clears throat> and um and the market at the moment isn't pricing that value at all and so it's like you have this optionality in it where even if that particular market doesn't move well, well big deal doesn't matter it's not priced right now on the other hand as we anticipate, if we're right, um, and we have a similar type of event, type of um, dynamic as we've had with cobalt, and we think that's coming in this particular space, then the optionality is massive. Um, and we still have this other asset um, on the back of it. So, so that's kind of interesting. And, and it's often yeah. because we have these, these – so like we talk, we've talked a lot about electric vehicles and – I mean, there's all the noise about Tesla and all this kind of, but Tesla is completely irrelevant, completely, because the firstly, the United States market is tiny compared to what's actually happening out in the world. China, China's electric vehicle revolution is way ahead of the US, way ahead. And, um, and they've got the ability to implement it. I mean, one, and you made, made a statement earlier, Jamie, which was around how many people are um, dying from coal and stuff like that. This is a huge issue for the Chinese government to bring um, clean air essentially to the Chinese people. And so they would move there like, and they can move very easily because remember, this is not a democracy. Like if, if they want to put a highway through your house, they're going to put a highway through your house. Like there's no mucking around. Right. Which is, yeah. <laughs> so, so the point is that... Well, I mean, so their ability hmm. to implement this is an order of magnitude greater. Well, it's not even that. They're implementing it now and at scale and rapidly. And, and so um, all, like, you don't even have to anticipate um, what's going to happen. It's already happening. 
Um, and so, and, and it's, it's fascinating because much of the analyst coverage across the world is just Western biased. And when you look at what's taking place in China, it's like, this is phenomenal. Um, and so the electric usage and all of the infrastructure around that, right. It's not just say cobalt for a car. It's, um, it's the, um, uh, mini nukes that they're building and there's a whole I don't want to go. I don't want to get into it now. But the point is that there's a whole lot of infrastructure around that, um, which is being built, and um, and so that's really a lot of, of, of a lot of interest to us. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's well, one thing. And and for them, like remember, they are they need to secure uh, <clears throat> a lot of the supplies for for what it is that they're doing. Now, if you go back and you look at what um, They've been securing energy because energy is the biggest component, like for any country, certainly in a geopolitical sort of crisis and a, and a fractious environment. Energy is the thing. If you haven't got energy, you're really in a lot of trouble. Um, and so they've so been. It's kind put- of interesting to see this this amalgamation now of energy and metals almost being the same thing, right? When you're seeing exactly. these countries rely more on on cobalt on lithium, on copper, on nickel, on, on these, you know, quote unquote battery metals that are now at the forefront of the energy space, or at least in, in public perception and will continue to be in the future. So you're seeing these, these metals go from kind of a nice to have to a necessity going forward. Yeah, you, you, um, you nailed it. So if you think about oil, which is kind of a traditional um, energy, and if you're in an, yeah. if, if you're, we've been talking about China, so let's stick with that as a, as a theme. If you're China, <clears throat> you want to try and secure that. So you, that's why they're very, very closely um, aligned with Russia, which has got, which has got commodities coming out of their ears and, and energy as well. But you don't want to also, you know, tie yourself to any one party too much. And so they, it's, this is very strategic for them. They're, they're, at the same time that they're building up those strategic reserves in, in oil and in um, natural gas and things of that nature, they're also moving rapidly towards other alternative energy sources that they have much more power and security over, like nuclear, like vanadium. Right. Um, and so th- this is a multifaceted um, approach and it's, it's happening at breakneck speed and few people are paying any attention to it. But what it means is that a whole lot of these metals and resources that people have sort of historically looked at them and gone, oh, well, that it does X, Y, Z. And, and, you know, every time I read an analyst report, for example, on, say, cobalt, it's like it's so fixated towards, I mean, there's almost like no Western analyst that talks about cobalt and doesn't mention Tesla. And I look at it and I'm like, this is insane. Like Tesla is, is, is a nothing. It's really a nothing. The amount of, <laughs> well, like, don't even make give Elon, Elon Musk credit <laughs> as I, I'd say Elon Musk is probably the greatest mining promoter in history. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's basically, he's basically outdone uh, the Friedlands and uh, what have you mm. as a byproduct of Tesla Look, in I, the um, and cobalt market. I'm very grateful to Mr. Musk for, um, for doing that because it's already made us a lot of money in, in a number of the resource <laughs> space and it's, um, it's already made us money on the shorts um, on Tesla and 
I think we'll probably give that company maybe 18 months and um, unless he pulls a rabbit out of the hat, we've, um, we've got a nice big donut there. But anyways, that's a separate topic. <laughs> but so those are kind of um, some of the metals and that that are in, of interest to us. I mean, the other component behind this, and you mentioned it before we started recording this call, was the One Belt, One Road initiative, which really is just like kerosene on the fire. And that all ties in. It's, it's um, this, this security of, um, of the nation. And um, that's, they've already spent a trillion dollars in, um, on this initiative and it's all infrastructure that they're building and they're pressing ahead um, aggressively on it. So don't, and it's not just that they want to build these trade networks, which they do, but this is how they are um, working towards securing a geopolitical future for them. And so I think, you know, I've occasionally I read, um, you know, comments or anal analysts reports on in China, and there's still a little bit of this narrative that, well, China's kind of capitalist and, and there's like they're waiting, Western analysts are waiting for them to, you know, become democratic. And I think that's just, it's, they're completely missing the point. This is not going to happen at all. They're mercantilists, as you mentioned before, and not. Yes. So um, they're very, and, and now we've got Xi Jinping who's basically given himself <clears throat> the ability to, to see through these initiatives that he started. And they're very long-term in thinking. I mean, most of the guys at the, at the top of the Communist Party are not going to be alive to see the end of what they've started. And that's, like, that's very, very different, Jamie, to how Westerners operate because they've got four years. And, and so they want to try and make a, you know, what was Obama's big thing? Ah, oh, it was like health care. You know, they, they want to walk out of office and go, there, I can point to that, and I did that but they've got four years to accomplish something before they're either kicked out or they have to get reelected. And then in order for them to get reelected, they have to promise all sorts of shenanigans and, con and codswallop. And, and even um, then they only get another four years. Exactly. It's like, and if you think Whereas, about it. So yeah. do you think in China, these, the leaders in China are, they're, I guess they're thinking beyond their own personal legacy, which is Absolutely. not really the way a president thinks. They're thinking of the legacy of the party and the nation. Exactly. They, they, they think of them, and I've had many conversations. In fact, just um, a couple of weeks back, I went and had a meeting with insider members in um, in Sydney, and one of the chaps there is a um, young Chinese gentleman who works as an analyst, and and he mentioned this, and he said, "You know what? You completely nailed it because he came from China and you know worked in the university, studied in the universities in, in Australia, and." living there now and he said he found it fascinating um that this this kind of this disconnect between how um the chinese people think and how westerners think and the chinese people think in civilizations like they think of themselves as a, as a civilization um and not necessarily as individuals westerners we've grown up thinking the individual is paramount Right, and well, it comes back to that comment that you made. Remember, you, you said that you had the um, uh, you, when you were lecturing in China, and you had that yeah. um, girl saying to you, "Oh, you know, she she had to do a debate, and she she wanted 
she wanted the other side of the topic and the other side of the topic was to was to suggest that one was, option uh, was better the, the than the fewer the options the better yeah correct and and so like there's just this big disconnect in terms of how they view things um which which is dangerous insofar as that you can have severe miscalculations when one side does not understand what the other side um thinks and and you and furthermore where that one side thinks they know what the other side is thinking that's really dangerous i i might think that i might think that um i don't know um you really want to play ice hockey because you're canadian of course right? <laughs> and so like you know i'm going to organize a night out for you and i take you out to ice hockey and you might be like you just you don't like ice hockey it's just a massive miscalculation based on what i think you actually want and and i could be completely wrong so um that's that exists at the moment i think it's quite dangerous i'm not sure how many people sort of understand that in when you've got things like trade wars going on um the the chance of a miscalculation that leads to something far greater is is quite high and that worries me a lot but that's not a world that we can um we we can assess that risk and try and uh, mitigate it as best as possible and we're just going to have to play that by ear but either way you know we come down on this this very volatile world and one where the desire to secure supplies and secure resources um i think is just going to accelerate and um and you and then you can play that with as we are with the with a number of resources but if you really want to make you know um get a good bang for your buck it's 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 going and doing what we're doing in a lot of these private placements um and then just being very very strategic and careful about them and and I mean that's why we were talking about the prospect generator model yep yeah you know you've got and again why we've been looking at uranium to such a strong degree exactly uh, i mean that is of all the i don't know if i want to say it quite like that but of all of the commodities out there there's been very few that have seen a, de a prolonged depression in the way uranium has uh i mean you know mines are shutting down producers cannot afford to keep mining at the prices that uh that uranium is currently being sold and bought at so something has to change. And as we see these countries reaching to secure energy, I mean, the demand is going to have to go up. So there's almost nowhere. Well, one more of the, yeah, one of the wonderful of, things with uranium, happened. and I think it's, it's actually also why we've had such, the, such a, a brutal bear market, is that the, in a nuclear reactor, um, once operational, the cost of uranium is fractional. I think it's, a, it's normally it runs around about three percent. So it's like yeah, uranium uh, which I didn't realize until a few months ago. I yeah. uh, I just learned that a few months ago. But yeah, that and the way they shift is almost negligible to the actual producer. Exactly. So 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 then you can understand that the producers don't need look in an, in a let's call it a normal environment. Your producers don't really care. Because going and securing the supply, like even if it's double the price, you just, pff, whatever. It doesn't, it's a little bit like you and I shopping and we're going to run out of salt, right? And it's like, oh, I got to buy more salt. And it's, it's twice the price today. You're like, whatever, who cares? It's, it's just a bit of salt. You know, it's like in, yeah. in terms of your meal that you're making, it's, it's negligible. You don't really care about it. So 
even if the price is 10 times, you might go, oh, that's kind of, that's interesting, but it's not really going to have any impact. And so that leads you towards the situation where you don't assess the risk of it um, because you haven't been thinking about it. But now let's think about this, Jamie. Suddenly, if you didn't have, like, let's say you were cooking something that, I mean, salt's a pretty shitty example, but like, let's say your meal just was fucking horrible without salt and you had to have salt. Otherwise, it just wouldn't work. I don't know, like maybe salt's, yeah, salt's a shit example. Let's just say it's like baking, you're baking something and you haven't got um, baking soda flour or something like that actually <laughs> makes the cake rise, right? I'm not a baker, right. so, but like, so your cake's going to be flat, right? And, and so you have to have that. And you never thought about it because it's such a small component. It's like a teaspoon or something of baking soda in your chocolate cake. Um, but that's the same situation. But now suddenly you go, oh, there's no baking soda. It's actually gone. There's none. And that's sort of the environment we're moving into because of this. It's becoming a political weapon. Um, and so we've seen that where Russia's just recently come out and they've put in front of the Duma a, a bill to ban any exports of enriched uranium to um, to the US and and they enrich about 45% of world supply right and about 30% yeah. of US energy is nuclear so I'm like I mean I kind of I joked about this the other day on Twitter I was like oh, I'm sure the Trump administration's thought this one through I'm sure they would have you know but like shit anyways so so this this changes the dynamic and, and uranium is just, a, that's just the start of this, this game. So, um, so yeah, we're positioned pretty well in a lot of these things. And the interesting thing is they haven't moved a whole lot yet. So I think the window of opportunity there is truly extraordinary because um, by the time that people wake up to the reality of this, um, then like, you know, uranium can double or triple, um, but the companies that are, that are involved in this, like they, they're not going to double or triple. <laughs> right. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of no, stuff. They can be 10 times. Or more. Mm. And, and again, look, I mean, in the, in the height of the bull market that we had, um, back down to where we well, are there, now today, there about, were 500 uranium companies, I think at the height of the bull market, and now exactly. there's 40 or 50, 90% of them have gone away. And so, and so, so like, um, look, it's just supply and demand. So it's a, that's a, it's a fascinating space. Um, and, um, I'm excited about some of the stuff we're doing there for sure. Um, and I mean, what are the, just in your neck of the woods here, they, what are you, cause you're, you're like, I mean, you're always kind of a little bit shy about this, but you're ridiculously well connected with a lot of really top players then. Um, we were talking some months back about vanadium and, and um, some of the stuff that Friedland's doing there. Are there in, in the, in that community, what are you seeing people focusing on the mo at the moment? Like you mentioned copper. Um, I know you like nickel and we've covered that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of copper, uh, gold, um, and you know what? I'm not seeing nickel yet. Uh, and I think that's very foolish. Uh, to me, that is arguably the thing that I find most interesting. You know, we've seen nickel on a little bit of a run since Christmas. Uh, and 
no one's picked up on it. And I don't see very many companies actively going after nickel projects. Uh, and there aren't that many to be found or to be had. So that's something that I'm on the lookout right now for. What I am seeing more of is copper companies that are starting to come together. Uh, you know, an interesting one and an excellent one, I think, is uh, Athon, which was just launched uh, out of Prospect Generator Ultius. Uh, which consists of a number of properties in, I believe, Chile, uh, all exploration stage, and they're on the hunt for more copper assets. That's, I mean, that's where I see a lot of attention going right now. Um, yeah, copper and gold is where most people are looking. Yeah, very good. Okay, well, Jamie, um, it's been wonderful chatting again, as always. And until next time, um, I hope everybody enjoyed this. If you've got any questions, please feel free to drop them in the comments box below this. Um, Jamie and I are going to be having these conversations fairly regularly, covering a lot of the stuff that we're looking at. And um, lastly, if you have an interest in investing in these kinds of deals, it's, it's, which is to say private placements in the resource space, we're putting them together and working with some uh, colleagues and friends of ours to put together the best deals that we can find for our own capital. And, um, and if you want to participate in that, we'll have a little um, box you can go to and we'll give you more information as we, um, as we launch that particular service. So um, that's my little, my little pitch on that front. Um, if you're not accredited, unfortunately, um, that's, um, that's just one of those things. It's the, they make the rules. We don't. Uh, we think it's stupid, but nevertheless, you're allowed to go to Vegas and blow your money, but you're not allowed to invest in private companies. Imagine that. So, unless unless you're in Europe or Asia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, can. exactly. It's yeah, it's mostly <laughs> a North American thing. Um, and in Asia, though, there's no such. To my knowledge, there's no such requirements. Um, certainly, I've got a number of friends who've participated in all sorts of deals um, without meeting the designation on the restrictions that are placed on their North American counterparts. So um, that's the way it is. But thanks everybody for listening and um, I hope you enjoyed this. Take care and until next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at. Thank you.